The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Okay, this is uh, Tuesday night, so we're studying Genesis. And since we're studying Genesis, we ought to have a creation update. Once upon a time in the kingdom of heaven, God was missing for six days. Eventually, Michael the archangel found him resting on the seventh day. He inquired and said, God, where have you been? God sighed a deep sigh of satisfaction and proudly pointed through the clouds and saying, Look, Michael, see what I made? Archangel Michael looked puzzled and said, What is it? It's a planet, replied God. And I put life on it. I'm going to call it Earth, and it's going to be a great place of balance. Balance, inquired Michael, still confused. God explained, pointing to different parts of the Earth. For example, northern Europe will be a place of great opportunity and wealth, but cold and harsh, while southern Europe will be poor but sunny and pleasant. I've made some lands abundant in water, and other lands parched deserts. This one will be extremely hot, and while this one will be very cold and covered in ice. Well, the archangel was impressed by God's work and then pointed to a landmass and said, What's that? Ah, said God, that's Texas. The most glorious place on earth. There are beautiful beaches, streams, hills, and forests. The people from Texas are going to be handsome, modest, intelligent, and humorous. And they're going to be found traveling the world. They will be extremely sociable, hardworking, and high-achieving. And they will be known throughout the world as diplomats and carriers of peace. Michael gasped in wonder and admiration and then proclaimed, What about balance, God? You said there would be balance. God wisely replied, Wait till you see the idiots I put in Austin. Well, before we get started in our study of the Word this evening, we need to make sure we're ready to focus on God's Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful for another day that you have given us and the opportunity to study your word and to grow and mature, opportunity to see you work in our lives and an opportunity to come to a better understanding of your grace and your goodness. Now, Father, as we study in this episode in the life of Abraham, we pray that you would give us insight and that we will be, would be able to understand how these things apply to our own lives that we would be challenged in the way we think and how we relate to people, and that we can come to a greater appreciation of your integrity, your righteousness, your justice. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we last visited Genesis, so we need to make sure we have a little review. Actually, in Genesis 18 we have a beginning of an episode that extends through chapter 19. And this all relates to what God is doing in bringing judgment upon Sodom, Gomorrah, and the cities of the plains. In one sense, the first 15 verses serve as a prologue or an introduction. They set up the situation prior to the judgment. You have two stages, the visitation with Abraham of three personages, three individuals. And in that visit, we discover that one of them is the Lord God. And then following that initial visit where they have a meal of fellowship, a covenant sealing meal, as it were, and another announcement about the coming of the promised seed, 
you have a, another episode in verses 16 to 33 where God is going to tell Abraham what he is about to do in terms of bringing judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you know, just a minute, whenever you're walking late, come on in. Don't worry about walking in late. We always have, it's a problem there. We try to keep the back doors open, but sometimes when it gets late at night and dark, don't worry about it. Anyway, those first 15 verses focus on the renewal of that covenant, a reiteration of the covenant. And that is the background to this whole chapter, is the Abrahamic covenant. It is the foundation of the first 15 verses, and it's the backdrop for verses 16 to 33. And when we think of the Abrahamic covenant, there are three things that ought to come to our mind. We're going to be sick of this. It's land, seed, and blessing. That's what the Abrahamic covenant is all about, that God promised Abraham a specific piece of real estate, and that his heirs would inherit the land, and they would fill the land. And this forms a basis of several of the tests that God gave Abraham in his spiritual advance. The second element's the seed, and that's been the focus of the last few chapters as we saw the covenant signing ceremony in uh, this, uh, the, the, the sign of the covenant, rather, in chapter 17, dealing with the uh, sign of circumcision and the first announcement that the seed would be a male child, a son, and that the seed would come, the, the promised child would come within a year. And as I pointed out in the last study, that by the time we come to chapter 18, a few months has gone by, maybe just a few weeks, we don't know the exact time, but obviously in chapter 17, if Sarah was going to have the child within a year, and in chapter 18, it's still within a year and she's not pregnant yet, well, it can't be more than three months. You just have to do the math. So the first 15 verses in this chapter focus on a test related to the promise of the seed. Now, we set this study of Abraham up by going to James chapter 1, verse 2. Reminds you of that promise that ought to be written in your minds very clearly. Uh, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance will have its perfect and maturing result. The point of that verse at the beginning of James is to emphasize the fact that growth in the spiritual life comes incrementally through tests that God brings into our life. And with each one of these tests that we go through, we have the opportunity to apply God's Word to those. That's what it means by faith. It's a testing of faith, not can we trust, but what are we trusting in. And so we see the same thing with Abraham. There are these uh, these incremental increases of revelation given to him related to the promise of God, and then God tests him. And I've identified uh, at least 12 tests in Abraham's life that carry him from from his immaturity at the beginning to his spiritual maturity by Genesis 22. Genesis chapter 18 focuses on a test related to the seed promise. And in this, he is promising once again that Sarah would be pregnant. Of course, we see the episode towards the end where she laughs. And the focus here is that God is going to provide uh, a child. And it is going to come through Abraham and Sarah. And the, the key idea in the whole first 15 verses is the phrase that comes up in chapter 14. I mean, verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? It is a focus on his omnipotence, and therefore it's a test for Abraham in relationship to the essence of God. And that same thing is true for us. Are we really willing to trust God in terms of who he is? Sunday night we started a brief study on the essence of God and the attributes of God, and it's often important for us in terms of uh, trials or tests or crises in life just to think through those attributes of God in relationship to whatever the test or crisis might be. Now, in the first part of the chapter, in the first 15 verses, the test for Abraham related to grace orientation. 
Here he has three visitors that show up, and they are unannounced, and they appear to him while he is resting in the hot afternoon sun. And when he sees these visitors come, he responds in grace orientation. He doesn't know who they are. He may have some inkling that it may be God or one of them may be God, but he's not sure. So, but he responds very graciously as a host. He invites them to come in to sit down, to rest. He brings them water. He goes in and uh, tells Sarah to make bread, and she makes an enormous amount of bread, as we saw last time, using three seas of flour, which is enough to make bread for all of us in this room. He then uh, goes out, and he has a calf butcher. Uh, we would assume that he would use his servants to do most of the work, but he has the calf killed, butchered, and he prepares the meal. And then the meal is cooked, so all of this takes a certain amount of time. And then he sits down with his three visitors, and he eats the meal, and they enjoy the meal. And the meal is a picture in Scripture of fellowship. And we see this imagery all the way through the Scripture, beginning in Genesis and going all the way to Revelation, that well-known verse in Revelation 3.20 that is not a salvation verse, says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, uh, let him invite me in, and I will come in and dine with him. And that's that picture of fellowship, not salvation. And from Genesis to Revelation, though, the emphasis or the picture of eating is a picture of intimate fellowship. And often covenants are sort of um, sealed with a meal where the covenant partners will sit down and enjoy a meal together. And it marks a celebration of the signing of a covenant. Now, we also looked at the fact that this teaches the importance of hospitality as a manifestation of grace orientation. And we saw that in the New Testament, this is specifically expected of pastors, but it's also expected of all believers according to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9. We should be hospitable to those who are believers and are traveling through, specifically missionaries or speakers or others opening our home if we can, taking them out to dinner, uh, getting that opportunity to get to know them. And one of the great things that some of you miss out on is, uh, and so I know some of you can't do this, but to have someone, uh, when we invite speakers here to invite them to stay in your home, gives you a great opportunity to get to know some of these men. And those of you who've experienced that realize what a wonderful blessing that is. And it's all just a manifestation of grace orientation. Well, as we come to the conclusion of the passage that we studied last time, God announces that by the next, this time next year, the child will be born. And of course, Sarah's back there chuckling over this, and God pointed that out to her, that this exhibited a certain amount of skepticism on her part, and of course she swallowed hard and didn't want to admit that she was doubting God, and God raises the question, is there anything too hard for the Lord? So we see two things going on here. We see on the one hand that there is a test for Abraham. Is he willing to trust God, first of all? Secondly, it's manifested through his grace orientation. That's the test. Then we see that there's also a doctrinal point related to the essence of God that is hammered home, and that is that, as the New Testament puts it, there is nothing impossible for God. So this takes us right to the attributes of God, the essence of God. And specifically in this episode, we see two attributes highlighted. His omniscience, because God is able to announce with certainty when the child is going to be born. He knows the future. He knows all contingencies. Omniscience means that God knows all of the knowable. The second thing it points out is his omnipotence. God is able to do whatever he wills to accomplish. That's a technical definition of omnipotence. Now, too often people try to reduce it to say God can do anything. Well, he can't make a circle a square, and he can't get involved in logical uh, inconsistencies, but God can do whatever he wills to do. There is nothing too hard for the Lord. There is nothing impossible for the Lord within the order of creation, for he has created all things, included all physical laws, all biological laws. Everything comes from the hand of God. Therefore, God is able to circumvent those laws. He's able to do whatever is necessary. 
Well, that brings us up to speed on where we are right now. And then in verses 16 to 33, we see another test. Another test. The first test focused on grace orientation. The next test is going to focus on what I call grace orientation's big brother, the adult brother. And that is the tough spiritual skill, the tough problem-solving device for most people. And that's what we call impersonal love or unconditional love. It has to do with Abraham and his exhibiting love for Lot. Because Lot has tried to cheat him. Lot's uh, servants uh, were constantly getting involved in fights with Abraham's servants. And you see this certain antagonism between the two camps, but it all flowed from Lot's side. It wasn't from Abraham's side. And we saw the beginning of uh, Abraham's grace orientation when we went back to Genesis chapter 15. In fact, when Genesis 18 begins, we're told that the location here is at the Oaks of Mamre. Mamre was an Amorite who lived near Hebron. And this was the location where uh, Abraham pretty much settled down. And the first time we see him go to Mamre and establish an, an altar there is right after the episode in Genesis 15 when Lot's uh, servants and herdsmen were getting involved in fights and arguments with, with Abraham, and, and Lot was taking advantage of Abraham. And when Abraham offered him his choice of the land, Lot took the very best, or what appeared to be the very best, because he lacked any doctrinal orientation. He couldn't see the doctrinal problems, the moral problems, the spiritual problems of the cities in the valley because he lacked that doctrinal perspective. So he chose on the basis of surface appearance, he chose on the basis of materialism and his uh, 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 orientation to the wealth and beauty of the valley rather than on the basis of spiritual values. And we see that Lot's a believer, but he is just completely messed up in his whole scale of values. So that's the last time we saw Lot. We haven't heard anything about him up to this point, but he is the real issue here in the test in verses 16 to 33 because he has now taken up residence in Sodom and God is about to completely destroy Sodom and in the process he's going to uh, disclose this to Abraham and it is that disclosure that gives Abraham a, a, a test. Well, am I going to say something? Am I going to intercede for Lot? Am I going to uh, act as his advocate before God or am I just going to let God go down there and uh, judge and destroy everybody, including Lot. You know, he's no good, he's rotten, he betrayed me, he, he uh, caused all kinds of problems. Well, if God judges him and he dies, well, he deserves it. See, is Abraham going to respond out of human viewpoint and out of his sin nature, or is he going to operate on the basis of divine viewpoint, grace orientation, and impersonal love? So in conjunction with this, we see this test for Abraham related to impersonal love, but in the process, what's interesting is Abraham, as he's grown to maturity now, we see that he sort of tests God. God has sets up a test for Abraham, but in the midst of this test for Abraham, Abraham is going to test God. And the test that he has for God, once he learns of this judgment, has to do with understanding how God's justice and righteousness work together. And the basic question that Abraham is asking that underlies all of this dialogue is the question, is God trustworthy with regard to carrying out his justice in human history? Can I really trust God to do the right thing? When there are problems, issues in life, there's suffering, there's the existence of evil, uh, can I trust God to resolve the evil and to execute justice? That even though I may not see it, even though I may not participate in it, even though it may not happen for years or maybe not until a future judgment, can I trust God to resolve the issue? This is a burning question for many folks. Many of us have gone through circumstances and situations where we, we want to question God's justice. Is this really fair? Has God done things the right way here? And then we see things happening in the world, and if you've been a believer for long and you really understand the Word, then this may not be an issue for you. 
I know that uh, in my life I've been a believer since I was six years old. And I've been studying the Word and uh, involved in, under solid Bible teaching almost my whole Christian life. And so this really has never been something that bothers me. But I know that at times when I'm witnessing to unbelievers, they really have a problem with this. And this, so this is something that as believers we need to, uh, in some ways, help them understand. How do you handle the injustice that's in the world? How do you handle the suffering that's in the world? How do you handle the suffering that occurs to people who appear to be innocent, they don't uh, seem to deserve what has happened to them, and they'll pick out cases like what happened in Florida recently with the young girl uh, Jessica who was uh, sexually abused by that pervert and uh, kept in a garbage can and all the horrible things that happened to her. Or they'll focus on other elements of, of torture or horrible suffering that happens to criminals and perverts in this society. And they just want to use that to question, how can there be a just God? How can there be ultimate justice in the world when these kinds of things happen? Of course, this is the same kind of question that came up uh, after the Holocaust in World War II. How can a just God let these things happen? And, of course, the answer really isn't uh, simple if you don't have divine viewpoint framework. So unless you understand some basic things about the Scripture, you can just really get caught up in a merry-go-round when you're trying to talk to an unbeliever. What I usually try to do is just kind of work around the issue, and I often come back to the, the statement that Abraham makes down in verse 25, "...shall not the judge of all the earth do right." We have to go back to the character of God. We have to go back to understanding His uh, righteousness and his justice. This is his integrity. And that every human being has violated his righteousness, his righteous standard, and therefore in justice, God is bringing suffering and allowing suffering in the world. And what we see today is nothing compared to the eternal suffering that those who reject Christ will encounter. So the focus, once again, takes us right back to the character of God, just as the first episode focused on the omniscience and omnipotence of God. The second section focuses on the righteousness of God and his justice. Look at verse 19. Uh, God is speaking, and he says, For I have known him, that is Abraham, in order that he may command uh, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. And then we skip down to verse 23, where Abraham says, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? And he asks, Suppose there were fifty righteous within the city. And then in verse 25, he talks about the judge of all the earth. In verse 26 and on, he goes from fifty righteous to forty-five righteous to forty righteous to 35 righteous and 20 righteous and 10 righteous. What's the key word in the chapter? It's righteousness. And that's the underlying issue here. There is a test for Abraham, but within the context of this test for Abraham, Abraham is validating or verifying that God is a righteous God who will judge correctly and he will not uh, arbitrarily destroy the righteous along with the wicked. This is the framework for understanding these particular events. Now, the first section goes from verses 16 down to verse 20, or 19. 6 through 19, in the, and this involves God testing Abraham with respect to the blessing imperative in the Abrahamic covenant. So we see that in the previous section, the test focused on the seed, in this section, it focuses on the blessing. Now, why do I say that? Well, in verse 16, we see the circumstances. They finished their meal, they've enjoyed their meal, they've rested, and now the three men stand up. Now, we know that these aren't three normal men. They look like men. We studied this last time that, that they had all of the appearances and attributes of having normal human physical bodies. But we know that they weren't true human beings. One of them is the Lord God, and the other two are angels. Now, how do we know that they're angels? Well, because they are sent on their way to Sodom in this section. And in verse 1, we read now the two, uh, verse 1 of chapter 19, we read, Now the two angels came to Sodom. So these two men, two of the men referred to as men in verse 16, 
are now referred to as angels in chapter 19. So they appeared as men. In fact, the Hebrew word is ish, and it refers to males as opposed to just human beings. Sometimes it has the idea of human beings, but usually that's when the context is contrasting human beings with God. But here it has the idea of males. They appeared as three males. And throughout Scripture, angels always appear as male. That doesn't mean that they are male. Angels don't have sex. They don't have the ability to procreate because angels are not a, a, a species. Each individual angel is created individually. So as Jesus said, angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. And so that always raises a question for some folks. Well, what about the episode in Genesis chapter 6 when the sons of God, which is clearly a term for angels, uh, take uh, the daughters of men as wives? And I pointed out last time that apparently from the passage we're studying in chapter 18, angels who have immaterial bodies are able to transform them into material bodies that have all of the characteristics of human physical bodies. They're going to eat, they're going to drink, they're going to eliminate, they're going to rest, they're going to do all of these things. And so we infer from that that they were able to have uh, uh, sexual procreation. And the result of that was sort of a hybrid race that came out in Genesis chapter 6, and that's made clear in Jude 1.6 and 1.7, which indicates that the sin the sexual sin, the sexual perversion in Sodom and Gomorrah is of the same kind of sin as the angels in Genesis chapter 6. Jude 1.6 said that the angels who did not keep their proper domain, that is their original uh, place, their original shape, their original immaterial body, but left their own abode, uh, he's reserved them in everlasting change, And these angels, as Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7 reads, but you've got to get the comparison right, the angels, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, having given themselves over to sexual immorality. So it's very clear from the New Testament that this was a sexual sin. Well, that's beyond the scope of this passage, but this is the passage that shows that that angels could, at that particular time, take on human attributes, complete physical attributes, and so that's who the three men are. The Lord Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, and the, uh, the two angels. And as they get up to leave, it's a dynamic situation. We see the three getting up, and they're walking away, and Abraham is probably putting a few things away before he catches up with them. And as they're walking away, the Lord says in verse 17, and he's either talking to himself or he's just in, in, uh, asking a rhetorical question of the two angels who are with him. And the Lord says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Well, the implication is no, you shouldn't hide from Abraham what you are doing. You should tell Abraham what you are doing. And this information is going to provide a test for Abraham. And there are two aspects to this test. The first aspect is that Abraham needs to be tested because he will become, that is, his progeny, his descendants, will become a great and mighty nation. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed by him. In other words, because of Abraham's position as the source of blessing for all nations, he needs to be trained in understanding what? Righteousness and justice. He has to understand the integrity of God. Now, when we look at our chart on the essence of God, on the left side we have attributes related to God's uh, being a personal God. He's the sovereign creator. He is righteousness, and righteousness is defined as the standard of his character, absolute perfection. He is justice. Justice is the application of that standard to his creatures. He is also truth. That involves uh, integrity, that what he says is true, and the implication is he will fulfill what he says, and that's where we get the concept of faithfulness related to immutability. 
And then the fourth or fifth characteristic on that left column is love. And these work together. And that's what God is teaching Abraham in this episode. He's teaching him about love. And he's teaching him about God's righteousness and justice. Now, love really isn't mentioned here, is it? Righteousness and justice are mentioned here. But the whole passage is dealing with this concept of impersonal love. Now, before we get any further, let me define that concept of, of impersonal love. The word impersonal is a word that a lot of folks don't like. In fact, I know some pastors who try to use this word or that word to try to come up with some other synonym. But actually, if you look it up in the dictionary, the word impersonal really is a word that has, uh, has meaning. The first meaning listed in Collins' dictionary is that it is a something that does not involve a personal knowledge or personal relationship with something. So impersonal can easily communicates the idea that we want to communicate here, and that is that you don't have to have a personal relationship with the object of love. But the problem is that the second meaning for impersonal connotes something that is devoid of warmth, care, or something that is mechanical or cold. And that's what a lot of people think of when they think of impersonal. And so the word impersonal, connected to the word love, seems to be uh, a contradiction in terms. That on the one hand, you're talking about something cold and something mechanical, and then you're linking that with love. Well, that doesn't seem to make sense to a lot of folks. And perhaps a better word is non-personal. I keep playing with this. Non-personal. Because the idea that we're trying to get across is there does not have to be a personal relationship. You can, you can demonstrate love to the cashier at the grocery store. You don't have a clue what her name is because you can't really read her name tag because you forgot to put your glasses on. Or it can be somebody driving down the freeway that is just acting like an idiot and they're cutting you off, and so you, instead of uh, uh, doing what you would naturally want to do because you're out of fellowship, you just yield the right of way and, and hope that they don't uh, kill themselves or anybody else in the process. In other words, you treat them in goodness and kindness and, and uh, do the right thing for them, not because of who they are or because you know them, but because of who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. Another term that we use to communicate this concept of love that is so important to, to Scripture, especially the New Testament and believers in the New Testament, is the idea unconditional. And what unconditional seeks to emphasize is that we don't place a condition on our love. I'm going to love you without saying that you have to meet any standards. You don't have to look a certain way, dress a certain way, act a certain way, or respond a certain way. There are no conditions. I will love you unconditionally. But a word I'm beginning to like more than the word unconditional is the word unmerited. Unmerited. That means you don't do anything to earn or deserve the love. In fact, you may not deserve it at all. What you may deserve is uh, judgment, something harsh, something uh, harmful. Maybe you deserve to be... Uh, put away in account of some kind of judgment. Maybe you have committed some evil, horrible uh, acts, but I'm going to deal with you out of unmerited love. I will deal with you in kindness. I'll deal with you in goodness. But as I pointed out Sunday night when we studied love, the best definition of love that I've been able to come up with so far is to treat, is to give somebody their very best. Give somebody, treat somebody in terms of the very Best. Give them the highest and best. Now, whenever you use words like highest and best, those are superlatives. And for those of you who missed out on that lesson in grammar, that means you're, that, that's the highest expression of an adjective. And as soon as you use words like highest and best, you're, you're invoking a, a certain comparison between that which is worse and that which is better. And you're dealing with values. Now, whose values are you going to use? You can say, well, I'm going to treat somebody in terms of what is the best for them, what is, what is right for them, but how are you defining right from within your own self in terms of what you think is right? So that's how a lot of people take it, is I'm going to treat you in, in terms of what's best for you, and I'm going to determine what's best for you. 
No, God determines what's best for you. Whenever you use those value-loaded terms that imply some sort of universal standard, that can only go to God. So the only way as a believer that you can truly love somebody is if you have an absolute standard that you're going to in order to in order to treat that person in terms of what is best for them, not what makes you feel good, not what keeps you in your comfort zone, not what they deserve, but in terms of an absolute standard of revelation that God has given to us. And and in order to do that, that means you have to know the Word of God. That's why when we go through the the, uh, stress busters or the spiritual skills, doctrinal orientation precedes impersonal love or unconditional love for all mankind. You have to have doctrinal content in your soul to provide that that standard so that you can know what truly is objectively the best for someone, whether it is uh, as a parent dealing with a child, whether it is an, as an adult child dealing with a parent. You know, there comes a point when uh, uh, children, adult children, have to look at their elderly parents who are in their uh, dotage and have to say, you know, you just can't drive anymore. You can't do this anymore. You can't do that anymore. I have to start acting like a parent because you have demonstrated various uh, uh, characteristics of senility or Alzheimer's or whatever, and you can't really be trusted to make good decisions. So we have to execute uh, love for people, and sometimes that means making difficult decisions. Sometimes it means making decisions that uh, may seem harmful and wrong by the person we're loving. We all had, if you've ever spanked a kid, and hopefully if you're a parent you did, if you ever spanked a kid you know that you didn't really enjoy that, and they, they just couldn't understand how you could love them and beat them like that. But see, the Scripture teaches that if you love a child, you are going to discipline them. You will not uh, refrain from using the rod of correction. And that is not a metaphor. It is teaching about the fact that there is corporal punishment. Parents have to instill discipline corporally sometimes to their children. It doesn't mean you're beating, beating them and abusing them, but you are teaching them through corporal punishment. So impersonal love or unconditional love or unmerited love flows out of an absolute standard that can only be grounded in the character of God. So as we look at what's going on here, we see the emphasis on righteousness and justice, but the test is whether or not Abraham is going to, has learned his lessons from grace orientation and he's going to stand as an intercessor or advocate for Lot even though Lot has uh, mistreated him, abused him, taken him for granted in the past. Is Abraham going to understand this connection between righteousness, justice, and love? And Abraham does pass this particular test. So in verse 17, we read of God's soliloquy, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. This is the first reason that this test exists. Abraham's going to be great, father of a great nation, so we need to train him. That's the purpose of all testing, is to train us for future roles and responsibilities. And then verse 19, we see the second element of the test. For I have come to know him. And that phrase, come to know him, is a term for having an intimate relationship with someone. It's not talking about uh, some sort of objective uh, knowledge or empirical acquaintance. God is not saying, oh, way back there. Now, that person looks familiar. That's Abraham. I know what he looks like. This is the same idea of intimate relationship you see indicated in the euphemism for for uh, sexual intimacy in Genesis uh, chapter when it says that, Ab- that Adam knew Eve. That doesn't mean that he sat across the room and said, I recognize you. It involves that close, intimate relationship. So God says, For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him. Notice, it's setting Abraham up as an example to his descendants. 
And that is part of what goes on in any test that God brings into our lives is that we can be an example to others, that we can be a testimony, a witness to the grace of God in our lives, both to people around us as well as to angels. That they keep the way of the Lord. Now, what is the way of the Lord? It is defined in context by the next phrase. The way of the Lord is to do righteousness and justice. Now, the way of the Lord is the application of righteousness and justice within the sphere of human relationships. So before we can understand how to apply that within our, our human relationships, we have to understand it in terms of God's character. That's why you have to study the Scripture. You have to study the Scripture to understand who God is, and you have to understand the Scriptures so that you can then take these things and apply them in terms of everyday relationships. And the Scripture then gives you the models here and there on how to do this. And that's what this chapter does. It's, a, it's one of the best chapters in the Scripture to understand God's righteousness and justice in light of uh, suffering and wickedness that's going on in human history. In verse 20, we have God's second statement, and the Lord said. And here we come into an anthropomorphism. Now, the term anthropomorphism is a term that is used for a figure of speech. There's two figures of speech that are very similar sounding, anthropomorphism and anthropopathism. Now, an anthropomorphism uh, is a compound word from the Greek word anthropos, meaning man or human, and morphe, meaning form. So it has to do with uh, the attribution of some element of human form to God. And so we define it as language of accommodation that ascribes to God human physical characteristics which he does not actually possess, such as the eye of God goes to and fro throughout the whole earth. Uh, Human physical characteristics which he does not actually possess to reveal and to explain his actions, plans, purposes, and policies to man. It is using human frame of reference in order to understand what God is doing or what his plans are, what his policies are. Anthropomorphism. It's interesting, we often get into questions related to, does God have emotion? And one of the things that people often go to is statements related to his justice, where it talks about the wrath of God or the anger of God. And it's interesting to note that in the Hebrew language, the term that is translated anger is actually an anthropomorphism. It doesn't, the Hebrew doesn't use the word anger. It uses the word, his nose turned red. You ever seen somebody really get mad and their whole face just turns red? Well, that's the way a, a, a Hebrew would talk about somebody getting mad. They wouldn't just say he's angry. They'd say his nose turned red. And so when you read that in the Scripture, that God's wrath burned against Israel... What it's saying in the Hebrew is his nose turned red. Well, God doesn't have a nose. You know, I remember talking with one guy one time, and they said, well, how can you say God doesn't have emotion? It says that he's angry. I said, yeah, but you've got to have anthropopathisms. An anthropopathism is where we attribute a human emotion to God that he doesn't actually possess in order to communicate his actions, plans, policies. It's the same kind of thing, except it's dealing with the emotional realm. And I said, and, and he went right to that passage in, in Acts, or in, uh, in uh, Exodus chapter, uh, I think it's Exodus chapter 24, where uh, God is so angry with Israel because Aaron has just made the golden calf and Israel's gone right back into uh, idolatrous worship. And it says, God was, you know, God's anger, God's wrath burned against Israel. It says his nose burned. I said, well, does he have a literal nose? No. Well, how can you say he has literal anger in the same way you do? You can't. It's an interesting thing. You've got an anthropopathism built on an anthropomorphism. But you have to understand that God is beyond us. He's the creator. So he has to speak to us with analogical language so that we can come to understand what would normally be incomprehensible for us. So we see here that at the that 
in this passage that God's actions towards Sodom are viewed anthropomorphically. The scripture says, verse 21, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. He's saying that this cry has come up to me. How anthropopathic. God is omniscient. He knew from all eternity past what was going to happen in Sodom. But it's, it's talking in this language of accommodation for us that it's as if it just happened and I'm just now hearing this cry. And the fact is God's been aware of this all along and he has been dealing with uh, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah in grace. In fact, one of the key principles in this passage is that God is not in a hurry to execute judgment. He has given them time and time again in order to turn to him. God is not in a hurry to condemn mankind and to judge mankind. He is continuously extending uh, grace to us. So the, the sound of their cries come up to God and he's going to go down to see. Well, in his omniscience, he already knows what's going on there. But what this pictures in this metaphorical language is that God's knowledge prior to his judgment is complete and certain. His knowledge prior to judgment is complete and certain. So that when God judges, he judges on the basis of complete and total knowledge. He's not missing any facts. It's not going to come up ten years later that, oops, we discovered this in DNA and and we made a mistake. Or some witness is going to come up uh, 30 years from now and say, well, you know, I saw the whole thing, but I really didn't want to come forward and this is what happened. No, God has all the information so that his judgments are sure and certain and absolutely right. They're consistent with His the absolute standard of his righteousness. So God says in verse 21, I'm going to go down now and see what they have done altogether uh, according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the emphasis here goes to his omniscience, which means that his justice is sure and certain. And at that point, God doesn't go anywhere. Notice, the two men go with him. They're angels. They are, the root word in the Hebrew is malach, which means messenger. They, he has delegated the authority to them, and they're going to go down, and they're going to look at the, at the situation. Of course, God knows what else is going to happen, and that there's a dual purpose in this, because they will be involved in the rescue of Lot. So the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And then we see Abraham test the Lord in verses 23 to 33. Now, this is pretty easy to to uncover and digest as we go through this cycle. And what we see is that Abraham is going to test God to see if God is truly trustworthy in terms of how he deals with men. And he is specifically concerned about Lot. In verse 23, Abraham comes near to God and he says, Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Now, what does he mean by righteous and wicked? He doesn't mean that Lot is morally pure and clean and that he has no ethical problems down there living in the midst of Sodom. Neither does he mean that the men and women in Sodom don't have some good points, that they're not don't have winsome personalities and that they're not attractive individuals and that they're not uh, hard workers and diligent because, uh, of course, from any the evidence that we have, they were. It was a thriving civilization. What he means by righteous and wicked is that they're not rightly related to him. And we can see this as we study these two words throughout the Old Testament that righteousness and wicked have to do with one's position before God in relationship to the covenant. So if we bring that over into the terminology we use in the New Testament, righteousness refers to positional righteousness, that is, someone who is saved, and wickedness has to do with positionally lost, and they're unsaved. It doesn't have to do with their experience, because we know that Lot is experientially unrighteous. 
living down there, and we see further episodes in his life where he is, uh, uh, where his daughters come along and get him drunk and then have sex with him. I mean, this is not a man that is morally pure, ethically upright. This is a man who has considerable problems in his life. But he is called righteous Lot in Second Peter 2.7, which is a reference to his positional standing before God. And so Abraham's question is, if, there's a, if there are 50 believers living down there in Sodom, are you, are you going to wipe them out along with everybody else? He doesn't question God's right to wipe them out and destroy them. He uses a very uh, vivid term for uh, destroying them, slaying the righteous, just wiping them out, annihilating them. He says, uh, verse 24, he asks the first question, suppose there were 50 righteous w- within the city. Would you also destroy the place and instead of st- sparing it if there were 50 there? Okay, God says, no, I would spare it if there were 50 there. And then uh, Abraham asked that most important question stated at the end of verse 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the implication of the question is, yes, of course, because God is the judge of all the earth, he will do that which is right. What Abraham is doing here is interceding for Lot in a unique way by asking a variety of questions. Now, the thing that we ought to note here is this. This is a real sign of doctrinal boldness on the part of Abraham. He is able to do this because of the doctrine that's in his soul. And we look at some other prayers and examples of intercession down through Scripture, and we realize that there are various places where men of God, such as Moses, took a stand when God said, after the episode with the golden calf, God said, well, I'm just going to wipe out all the Jews. And Moses stood up and said, on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant, I don't think that's a good idea. I think you ought to let the people live. And you just wonder, where in the world does this individual get off challenging God to his face. It's because of the doctrine in his soul. And that's what Abraham is doing here. He is, as it were, presenting his case to God, his intercession, on the basis of doctrine. That's the same thing Moses does uh, over in Exodus chapter 32 when he uh, challenges God's decision to destroy the Jews. And what's interesting there is that when Abraham, I mean, excuse me, when Moses challenges God's decision, he does so on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant. He goes right back to the Abrahamic covenant and reminds God of his promise to Abraham that he's going to call out a nation through Abraham, and therefore he argues with God not to destroy the Jews in, in discipline at that particular time. And so Abraham is doing the same kind of thing here where he goes through this cycle. He asks, well, if you won't uh, destroy it, if there are 50 righteous men there, well, what about 40 righteous men in verse 29? Then in verse 30 he says, what about 30 righteous men? See, he's trying to find out where the breaking point is. And he goes down to 20 righteous men in verse 31 and then 10 righteous men in verse 32. And the point is that God says, I will not destroy for the sake of ten. I won't destroy these wicked, deserving unbelievers at the expense of any believers that are there. God is going to deal graciously with believers, and He will bless by association the unbelievers that surround the believers. And for much of this time, Sodom has, has experienced a certain measure of blessing and prosperity because of God's grace, because there was one carnal believer, not even a not even a spiritually advancing believer, but one carnal believer uh, living in their midst. And maybe some other members of his family were believers, but we know that Lot was. And so God departs. And what God is going to do in the execution of his judgment is since he will not judge The Sodomites, while there's believers there, he will remove the believers and then he will judge them. And in that, this is a type of the rapture. That before God will destroy the earth in the judgments of the tribulation, he first removes the church and then he brings judgment. 
And so in verse 33, we see the conclusion that the Lord then went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And immediately the scene shifts in verse 19 to look at how God brings judgment on Israel. Now this is a picture for us of intercession, of the doctrine of intercessory prayer. Now the first point, I just have... uh, Three points on intercessory prayer, so don't worry, we're getting close to closing time. First point, intercession means to act as an advocate or a mediator between someone else and God. It means to act as a mediator, an advocate or a mediator between someone else and God. And we're to do that in prayer. Every believer is to pray for one another as well as to pray for the lost. Second point, intercession in prayer occurs when a believer petitions God on behalf of others. That's what intercessory prayer is. You can have different kinds of prayers. You can have prayers of thanksgiving where you just focus on giving thanks to God. You can have confession prayers where the main point of the prayer is simply to admit or acknowledge any sin to God. You can have... Uh, prayers of petition, where all you're doing is praying for yourself, some aspect in your own life. But intercessory prayer is that aspect of prayer that focuses on petitioning God on behalf of others. And just a note, I don't know why this is. I've had a couple of questions about this recently. I don't know where it's coming from, but intercessory prayer is not a spiritual gift. Spiritual gifts are listed in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Romans chapter 11, and, 1, and Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, and intercessory prayer is not a spiritual gift. Point number three, intercession, though, is a function of grace orientation and impersonal love toward others. We're to pray for other people, even to pray for our enemies, pray for those who would harm us, pray for those who, those who have it in for us. We are not to harbor mental attitude sins of bitterness or resentment or hatred, but we are to pray for them that God would uh, do the best for them and that God would show them the truth and that they would come to understand the truth of God's Word in their own lives. So we are to intercede for others, and it is not de- that intercessory prayer is not dependent on either that person's actions or their, or their activities. Now, The key verse for this is found in James chapter 5. And this is one of those verses that's difficult to understand. I'm not going to do a detailed analysis of it, but I just want to hit it quickly. Confess your sins to one another. James 5.16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, we have to do a little exegesis here, just very quickly. The core part of that verse is to pray for one another that you may be healed. And the word for healing there isn't the word that you associate with physical healing. This is not a passage that deals with physical healing. It is a passage that deals with uh, spiritual recovery. Spiritual recovery because of a spiritual failure. The entire book of James deals with the principle of perseverance and endurance. That's the main idea. And when you get to this last section, and it talks about, uh, raises the question, verse 14, is anyone among you sick? It's not the word for uh, necessarily for physical illness. It's used that way sometimes, but it's primarily used for spiritual weakness or spiritual inability. And that is what fits the context, because the context is talking about persevering in times of testing. And so is any one of you sick that is unable to advance? Somehow there's, there's a sin in your life or failure and you can't go forward. Call for the elders, and here this is not a technical term for an office in the church. It is a term for mature believers in the congregation. Let him call for the mature, spiritually mature of the congregation and let them pray for him. And anointing him with oil here is a, is a practice of the ancient world. It wasn't a special uh, ritualistic anointing. That would be the, uh, gr- the Greek word uh, related to Mashiach, Messiah. This is the, uh, or, or excuse me, Creo, 
which is related to Christos. This is the Greek word alepho, which is the idea of uh, every morning you get up, you anoint yourself with a little water. You splash it on your face. You put a little stuff in your hair. And you get ready for the day. Ladies get up and they anoint their face with oil. They put on uh, makeup and other things. That's the idea. And the picture is that if you're depressed and you're down and you're discouraged and you're, you're not going anywhere in your spiritual life because of sin, then you need to have spiritually mature people praying for you and you don't walk around uh, with some sort of hangdog expression on your face in depression, uh, not putting on makeup, not combing your hair. And you notice this, when people get really whacked in life, their, their personal hygiene just falls apart. They, they don't put on clean clothes and they don't necessarily comb their hair or shave every day. But that's the idea here. This, everybody wants to make this a, a verse to try to heal people from some sort of disease, and that doesn't fit the context at all. The issue is dealing with sin. That's why it says in verse 16, to confess your sins to one another. That's not talking about public confession of sin. That is talking about admission of wrongdoing to those you have wronged. And when it comes to this sort of confession, it should be limited to those to whom you have, or those whom you have harmed, those whom you have personally injured. This is not at all a public confession statement. We're to confess your sins, that is, when you have uh, sinned and it's affected other believers in your immediate periphery, then you need to confess that sin to them. And then we're to pray for one another. This is intercessory prayer. For what? That you may be healed. In other words, that you may, uh, after you've confessed sin, that you can be restored in spiritual strength and growth to handle the trials and tests that are in your life. And then there's a promise that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And the illustration comes from Elijah in verses 17 and 18. And he talks about Elijah's being a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. This is just a side point. But in 1 Kings 17, which is where we get the illustration... He prays at the beginning of that chapter that it's not going to rain in Israel. Now, he's just applying the Mosaic law from uh, Leviticus uh, chapter 26 in the fourth cycle of discipline, that there wouldn't be any rain, the sky would be like bronze, and the earth would be like iron. And that's what Elijah was praying for at the beginning of 1 Kings 17. And he prayed consistently for that. He persevered, and Ahab is sending out his SS troops all over uh, Israel to try to find to seek and destroy Elijah. Now, in the second part of 1 Kings 17 is when the widow of Zarephath's son dies and Elijah heals him. But the writer of James doesn't go to the second half of the second half of 1 Kings 17 to go to a healing to illustrate his principle. He goes to the first half of 1 Kings 17 where there's prayer and perseverance in prayer to illustrate his principle. And I just say that because the illustration given for this topic that is raised in verse 14 about being spiritually weak, the, the illustration comes from a, right out of a chapter where there's a healing, a physical healing, and it's ignored in order to go to the illustration that fits the topic, which has to do with perseverance under testing. And, of course, Elijah is a picture of the Old Testament for persevering prayer. And part of persevering prayer is to pray for one another, verse 16, that we can be, that we can be healed, that is, advance in our spiritual growth. Now, Abraham's intercessory prayer wasn't a prayer for Lot's spiritual growth. It was a prayer that God would not judge him along with the others in Sodom. And so this was an example of Abraham's impersonal or unmerited love for Lot because Lot had done nothing to deserve any kindness from Abraham. In fact, the way most people would think, he would have deserved whatever he would have gotten if he had stayed in Sodom. But on the basis of the maturity now in Abraham's soul, the doctrine in his soul, he intercedes for his someone who has betrayed him, someone who has mistreated him, someone who has abused his hospitality and kindness. And this is the example that is set for us in terms of passing that test 
related to impersonal or non-personal love. We'll come back next time and take a look at uh, what goes on in Sodom, the episode there, the deliverance of Lot. And then coming up either next time or the time after that, I want to take a subject study and do an analysis of the myths of homosexuality and how we are constantly being propagandized from the homosexual left with a just a host of lies and it's, it's, they're so pervasive and they, they load up everybody, even the conservatives in the news media buy into these things. But we'll see some interesting facts related to uh, the myths of homosexuality. And I think that's a good place to study it. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study your word this evening. We pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied, that we can learn to exercise Uh, unconditional, non-personal love towards those around us who don't deserve it, who've mistreated us, abused us, betrayed us, and that we can treat them in kindness and goodness, not because of who we are, but because of who you are and what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.